Chasing Dramas. This is the podcast where we discuss Chinese culture and history through historical Chinese dramas. We are your hosts for today, Kathy and Karen. We are in episode 14 of the Tang Dynasty drama, The Longest Day in Chang'an, or in Mandarin, Chang'an Shen. If you have any comments or questions, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram or Twitter, or else email us at Karen and Kathy at ChasingDramas.com. As always, this podcast is in English with proper nouns and certain phrases spoken in Mandarin. Additionally, we reference translations from what is provided online, and we will also provide our own. We will start today's podcast episode with an episode recap, and then move on to history with some book differences interwoven in the history for today. In the last episode, Zhang Xiaojing finally caught up with the escaped members of the Wolf Squad, or at least one of them, to A, try to stop them, and B, rescue Wen Zhan. But unfortunately, it was a trap waiting for him. First, Yu Chang tried to stall for time, and then Cao Puyan also engaged in a furious battle to keep Zhang Xiaojing at bay. Except when Cui Qi arrived with the Liu Binjun, they walked straight into the trap set up by Long Bo, and the abandoned property where Cao Puyan was waiting for them exploded in a terrifying blaze. This is where we start episode 14. Screams fill the air as soldiers try to escape the flames and reach safety. Buildings collapse and explosions continuously burst through, preventing rescues. There is debris everywhere, and what's worse, because the explosion used petrol or oil, it's impossible to extinguish. From the reports that made their way back to Jing Anzi, no soldier that at first arrived on the scene into the abandoned property survived. Zhang Xiaojing and Cui Qi are both devastated by the blast, but Cui Qi more so. He's dumbstruck by the scene. However, Zhang Xiaojing quickly turns to the mortally wounded Cao Puoyan and screams at him for more information on this Fu Huo Lei. The English translation on YouTube calls it crouching fire, but Huo Lei just means bomb, so I guess you could just call it crouching bomb? Poor Cui Qi, however. He is dazed by the aftermath, and his voice shakes as he questions how Zhang Xiaojing would know of this Fu Lei, a bomb that is only a myth from the West. Petrol, or Shizhi, only burns. There's no explosion, so how did this happen and in the city? There's a lot of insinuation here of how Zhang Xiaojing would know this bomb was here, but Zhang Xiaojing doesn't have time for that and barked a couple of orders to Cui Qi on how to manage the aftermath of this disaster, which Cui Qi automatically just answers, yes, I'll do this. I feel like Cui Qi himself is a little surprised how quickly and how automatic it was for him to agree to Zhang Xiaojing's orders, because I feel like deep down he knows his accusations towards Zhang Xiaojing don't really make sense. Meanwhile, Cao Puyan murmurs some information only after Zhang Xiaojing retrieves his beloved necklace his daughter made him from the rubble. Zhang Xiaojing confirms that Long Bo is indeed behind this, but Cao Puyan doesn't have much more information on his whereabouts. Sadly, Zhang Xiaojing also believes that Wen Ran was killed in the blast since her clothes were recovered from the blast site. 
This deeply affects him, but he doesn't have too much time to grieve since Zhang Xiaoxing has to seek out where the rest of the petrol or bombs have gone to for that matter. He instructs Tan Qi, who arrived to aid him, to not have Li Bi question anything he does from that point forward. You can tell Tan Xi was worried Zhang Xiaoxing was killed in the blast and was quite relieved to see him alive. Tan Qi has people carry Cao Poyan back to Jing Si to keep him alive for further questioning. I'm like, how long does he have to live? But if he's alive, I guess he's a useful lead. Zhang Xiaoxing, though, finds a trail of spilt petrol on the road from the property and continues to investigate. Now, this massive explosion has the capital shook. The right chancellor Lin Jiaolong somehow managed to get his own demonstration of what petrol or shi zhi is with General Gan and Ji Wen. General Gan of the Right Cavalry explains that petrol comes from the West, and one of their troops, aka one of their Longyou troops in the West, managed to create this bomb to obtain victory because it is extremely powerful and cannot be extinguished for several days. However, because this type of bomb is quite unstable and difficult to manufacture, it has not been mass-produced for the Tang army. But see, now the right chancellor is on heightened alert. If it was just a couple of escaped wolf squad members running around, he's not too worried. But now with this highly destructive source possibly out in the wilds of the city, he must protect himself. That, plus knowing Zhang Xiaojing gave the Wolf Squad members a map of the Right Chancellor's property and potentially a revenge plot against him, the Right Chancellor, the Right Chancellor is, I think, correct to be on extreme alert. He says that I need the Liu Benjun to return back to the Right Cavalry's command and away from Jing Anzi as a way to bring more troops back under his control while also undermining the crown prince and Li Bi's influence. He's clearly taking every opportunity to maintain his power. Things are not looking good for the crown prince, as he gets intel from a palace eunuch that the emperor is furious at hearing about the explosion and has actually delayed his departure for the evening's festivities and that the right chancellor is already making moves to criticize the crown prince the next day. The crown prince surprisingly isn't too freaked out by all of this bad news. Instead, he calmly tells one of his eunuchs to send word of everything he just heard to Li Bi. And what is Li Bi up to all of this episode? He is quite tense after hearing the devastation in Changmingfang, but the first matter at hand is uncovering the secrets of Xu Bing, this lowly official who created Da An Du Shu, and quite frankly, really kickstarted the events of this drama. Li Bi ordered an investigation on Xu Bing using the database mechanism, and there are some odd components about Xu Bing. He only drinks the cheapest liquors with plenty of unpaid bills. And his wife still works as a cook for others, despite Xu Bin having more than enough salary as a government official to own staff. They rent a small place after Xu Bin sold off all of the property he was given as an official, which is actually a crime. 
But what is the most damning is that the records show Xu Bin had numerous and hours-long conversations with Zhang Xiaojing before he was sent to prison. Clearly, Da An Du Shu, or this database mechanism from Xu Bin, did not select Zhang Xiaojing out of the blue. It was Xu Bin. Finally, Xu Bin confesses that it was indeed he who selected Zhang Xiaojing for today's job. He wanted to get Zhang Xiaojing out of death row because he likes Zhang Xiaojing. He enjoys how Zhang Xiaojing speaks of his job, of the people of Chang'an, because Zhang Xiaojing truly likes the people of Chang'an. As Xu Bin puts it, Zhang Xiaojing interacts with evil people every day, but he never sees them as that. He only looks at the evidence of the crime. Zhang Xiaojing spends his time trying to understand the people of the city and what makes them click to ultimately cause a certain crime. That's why he's called the devil, not for his brutality physically, but for Zhang Xiaojing's ability to get straight into the emotional heart of the problem. Xu Bin here is blunt in admonishing Li Bi in that though they act similarly, Zhang Xiaojing actually cares about others. Li Bi cares only about himself. Even at this moment, Li Bi is thinking, will Zhang Xiaojing ruin all of the hard work that I've put in to Jing Anzi, and will he ruin the crown prince's chances? Not, what should I do about the people of Chang'an? Contrast that to Zhang Xiaojing, who only does what he thinks is right and does what he thinks he should do. He is not wavered by anyone else. This speech certainly causes Li Bi to pause and reflect, but he doesn't have too much time to think before receiving news from the crown prince about his investigation. They must turn back to the matter at hand and see if they can find the whereabouts of potentially more of these bombs. That is it for today's plot recap. Let's move on to some history. There's not a whole lot, but we do have a couple of items to highlight. Number one, at the beginning of the episode, we didn't talk about Longbo because it was a very brief scene, but he is eating a bowl of noodles. We can't tell exactly what it is. However, there is a sign on the side of this road that says Mo. Typically in China, we see Yang Rou Mo, which translates to pita bread soaked in lamb soup. To make the dish, the lamb meat is first boiled in a large pot. There's a bunch of steps to get the lamb broth to a white clear soup. And at the same time, pita or mo is heated for this dish. When the soup is about ready, the lamb is removed from the soup and cut into small pieces. Garlic, ginger, and scallions are added to the soup to add flavor. There's also a bunch of other spices that you can add, such as peppers, chilies, cilantro, etc. But to make this dish a yang rou pao mo, one needs to take the pita and rip it into small bits and add to the soup. The pao mo is all about the pita being soaked in the soup, hence pita bread soaked in lamb soup. This particular dish originated back over 2,500 years ago during the Western Zhou Dynasty. Back then, this dish was served for kings 
and was called Yang Geng. In the Strategies of the Warring States, which is a text that includes stories of the Warring States period in China, so 5th to 3rd centuries BC, one king riled up a man over a bowl of this Yang Geng. This man then went to another kingdom and persuaded that king to essentially decimate the original king. So yeah, all over a bowl of soup. Over the centuries, including the Northern and Southern dynasties, so 5th century AD, there were records of emperors enjoying this particular dish. There was one emperor who decided to release a prisoner of war for promoting this particular dish. By the time of the Tang Dynasty, these soups were enjoyed throughout the empire. However, the name was still as Yang Geng instead of Pao Mo. An original version of Mo was introduced during the reign of Tang Suzong in 757. Legend has it, the dish that we have it as today originated during the early Song Dynasty. The dish is still very popular in modern-day Xi'an. I had it when I was last in Xi'an several years ago, and it was quite delicious. There is apparently strict rules on what can be considered as palmo, and now they say you really have to hand-rip the pita and put it into the soup for it to be called yang rou palmo. The bowl of noodles that Longbo is having in the scene of the drama is clearly not the palmo we know today. The bowl itself needs to be more soupy, and what he's eating seems to be just mainly noodles. I found it interesting that the drama decided to have palmo clearly marked for the restaurant, even though, as I said, palmo wasn't really the name of this type of soup until, at least I would say, a couple hundred years later. Next, let's talk about the crouching fire bomb, or fu huo lei. We got an in-drama explanation of the crouching fire, but did it really exist? This crouching fire, or bomb, was invented for the book and drama. That's not to say the Chinese didn't know how to use oil for warfare, which is what we discussed in the last episode. It's just, we can't equate this crouching fire bomb to warfare gunpowder. The ingredients used for gunpowder as a combination were possibly invented back during the Han Dynasty by Chinese Taoists. We have records of a substance that sounds like gunpowder. However, gunpowder with its more explosive capabilities wasn't invented until late into the 9th century by the Chinese and then rapidly spread during the Song Dynasty in the 11th century. Here, we are still in 744 AD. In the drama, the screenwriters decided to name this as Fu Huo Lei, or Crouching Fire, instead of Meng Huo Lei, or Intense Fire, which is what it was called in the book. And I think there are a couple of reasons for this. In Chinese alchemy, there's a term for Fu Huo. Fu? has a few meanings, but in Chinese alchemy, really means to subdue. Huo means fire, but it also represents the yang type items. Think yin and yang. Sulfur, realgar, and cinnabar were all classified as yang or fire items. Just bear with me here. In order to use these uh, items, so sulfur, realgar, etc., according to ancient Chinese alchemy, one needed to use yin 
to subdue the yang of these items. Hence why, even with the name, there is fu huo, or subdue the yang. What did they use to subdue the yang? Why, they used saltpeter, which is another critical ingredient for gunpowder. So to create a tan, which was basically, you know, a potion or an elixir for Chinese alchemists, they would mix different types of substances together. By the 9th century, Tang Dynasty alchemists noted the smoke and flames that resulted from a sulfuric, realgar, and honey mixture. Apparently, a whole house even burned down because of this. And these alchemists named this mixture huo yao, or fire medicine, which is what we still call gunpowder today in Chinese. What's very interesting is that during the Tang Dynasty, even though gunpowder wasn't invented as like something to cause explosions, many of the components of gunpowder, such as sulfur, realgar, and saltpeter, were mixed with very rare herbs such as snow lotus, peonies, motherwort, licorice, mulberry leaves, etc. to create medicinal elixirs. These mixtures were recorded during the Tang Dynasty, and we can still read them today, but I cannot vouch for any of the medicinal qualities of these elixirs. These were rather popular during the time for the rich and powerful to attempt immortality, or maybe there were some health benefits. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not a doctor. I don't know how good it is to mix sulfur with certain things. But hey, people during the Tang Dynasty believed in what they wanted to. In the book, the author changes what the components of the Menghuole are, which are the intense fire, to be comprised of white phosphorus and pieces of wood. Which, again, makes sense, but gunpowder as a weapon wasn't invented until at least the 9th century during the Tang Dynasty. So think about it as probably like 60 to 100 years after the events of this book. It wasn't until the 11th century with Song Dynasty troops really using gunpowder for warfare. In the book, there was a brief discussion about or description about how this Menghuole was used earlier in the Tang Dynasty, but it uses the same explanation that General Gan uh, shared that it was very difficult to manufacture and that's why it wasn't very popular or was not mass produced. That closes out our discussion of episode 14 of The Longest Day in Chang'an. Let us know your thoughts. The music for this episode is Qingpingyue, played by yours truly with sheet music by Cui Jianghui. If you are looking for sites to watch Chinese dramas or movies and you are in the U.S., a friendly reminder to head on over to our sponsor, Jubao TV, that is J-U-B-A-O-TV. It is a free service that has a selection of Chinese dramas and movies to watch for those of you in the U.S., and they have launched on Sling TV, Plex, and are available online via the website Jumo, or else on TV, Xfinity, and Cox Contour. Once again, all of this is free. We will catch you all in the next podcast episode.